Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Well, let me remind you before we study the Word of God that the Lord loves you, that Christ died for you, that you were adopted into his family and he delights in you. We already sang a bit of that today, but would you feel that for a moment? So that as we open up the Word of God, you experience not simply me speaking, but you experience the God of the universe tenderly caring for you as his people. You know, as, um, oh, by the way, um, I want to congratulate the couple that just got engaged, Natalia and Joel. Joel just read. I don't know, I'm assuming it's public, but if it isn't, it's now. <laughs> so praise God. Uh, for his kindness to you and we'll continue to love and pray along and join you guys as God's leading you. Carice, welcome home. Really good to see you and praise God that we get a little bit of time with you before you head back to Italy. And thanks to the Myers for going to Honduras last week and loving uh, our kids. Uh, I was talking to them yesterday and they were just overjoyed. Uh, Gloria was like loving on uh, little granddaughter, Ellie, and uh, she wept <laughs> when Gloria left, but they just were blessed by you, so thank you. Thanks to each of you for serving them so well. I love that. I just love that Waterbrook is in our missionaries' lives, and so that's a great joy. Uh, I want to pray for a moment again uh, with you, and um, here's how I want to pray. If I were to ask you the question from what Joel just read, in this passage of scripture, if I were to ask you the question, who are the most blessed people in that text of scripture next to Jesus? Isn't it the people who are most desperate? We have this idea, we have a definition of what it means to be blessed. Sometimes we say the Lord has blessed us when our lives are going well, when in spring is breaking through and the songbirds are singing in our lives and the sun is shining. But I'll tell you that in this text of Scripture, there are two deeply broken people and it's in their brokenness they find the beauty of Jesus. And so if you're here today and you're broken, and we're going to talk about shame in particular, if you have come in the door feeling like you didn't feel worthy to come in the door, if you come into this place and you just feel like the storyline of your Christian experience has been one of public performance but private pain, let me just say to you, this is a great text to remind you that in our desperation, Jesus loves to meet us. And so I'm going to ask you to pray this morning um, with me a couple things. One is that Waterbrook, each of us, would be given a holy desperation for God. Let's pray for that. And then secondly, that we would be a community for desperate people. 
that this would be a community, a family. We call ourselves a gospel-centered, multi-ethnic family. This would be a family for the broken, for the bruised, for the weary. So would you pray with me? Let's seek the Lord again. Oh God, we are prone to performance. We don't even like to think in our quiet moments that we're as broken as we are. But Father, I thank you that Jesus was broken far more than we would ever be because he has bought us with his blood. That Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that the Holy Spirit has the power to bring us into the text that we might feel Jairus' struggle, that we might feel this woman's struggle, that we don't have to go through what they go through to realize that these people are us. Oh, give us a holy desperation, Father, so that we would see Jesus for who he really is. So that we would rejoice if we've been singing in truth. That we would rejoice in the cross of Jesus Christ and his triumph over sin, shame, and death. Give us a holy desperation, dear God, so that we might have eyes to see the way Jesus sees. That we might look around us and that we might see the broken and we say, this is a place for you. There is a place for you. There is a person for you. There is a family for you. Only when we're desperate can we see Jesus and why he came and who he is and why it's so good he's coming again. So help us, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. So as you know, we're going to talk about shame today. And as Luke chapter 8, we're at these four miracles at the end of the chapter. And at the end of the chapter, Luke is very clearly dealing with fear and faith. Fear and faith. All the miracles have to do with fear and faith. So the disciples, as we saw last week, get out on the sea. And the winds and the waves begin to blow. And they, Jesus is sleeping in the boat. And they cry out, wake Jesus up. Master, we're perishing. And Jesus gives them the penetrating question, where is your faith? Where is your faith? They feel like they're about to be swallowed up and Jesus addresses them and calms the sea. And even they marvel in fear. Who is this that even the waves, the water, the winds obey him? Who is he? He's the Lord. He's the Lord over the chaos. He's the Lord over the storms of our lives. He was Lord when the storms were raging, not just when they were settled. He's Lord. In the next scene, we have the demoniac, the garrison demoniac. Jesus goes up into Gentile territory, and here's a man tormented, just tormented, enslaved by demons. Not one demon, legion of demons, and he's naked, and he's been enchained, and he breaks the chains, and he's living in tombstones. Jesus comes to the man and the demons cry out, pleading with him, don't send us into the abyss. And so Jesus sends the demons out into a herd of swine and they go off into the sea and drown. And the herdsmen run and tell everyone what has happened and the people come and they see Jesus and they see this man sitting before Jesus and they panic, they're filled with fear and they ask Jesus to leave. It's going to cost us too much. 
Just seeing this man, but how was this man described? Where was he? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Isn't that good news in the gospel? Jesus comes along and reveals himself to be Lord over the chaos and Lord over the kingdoms of darkness. He's that Lord. Good news. But what we're going to see today is that sometimes the battle is right inside our own hearts. Sometimes that we all, and we all deal with this, we have this sin of shame. The enemy wants us to be to shame. And we're constantly in a culture that's characterized by shame. Sometimes the shame is that we walk into church and think, man, I am such a mess. And if anybody knew what a mess I was in, they would not want to hang around with me. I got good news to you. Jesus comes for that kind of messy people. The other difficulty in shame is you can come in not only fully aware that everybody knows of your nakedness and your sin and your shame, you can come in and realize that you've been working in a culture of religiosity that has been a shallow covering for the brokenness of your life and you think in your head, I'm not sure I can keep the game up anymore. Here's the good news. You don't have to keep up the game at all. You don't have to keep it up at all. This is not a church that is designed to pretend we've got it together this is a refuge for the broken the needy those without hope we have a mighty and sufficient savior isn't that good news i want to share you this quote from matt chandler chandler writes the gospel did not come the gospel bids us come into the light it doesn't shame us into the darkness not good news Come in, just come into the light. You don't have to hide anymore. So we have these two people, Jairus and this woman who's been suffering for 12 years, and Jesus bids them. I, I originally called the sermon today Freedom from Shame, but as I was studying, I go, we've got to give Jesus more glory. We're talking about being captivated by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Here's the glory. Jesus is personally shepherding these two out of shame. He's shepherding them. And we can look at that and say, if he shepherds them, he can shepherd us. And if he shepherds them, let's go on mission with Jesus to shepherd other people out of shame. So several years ago, Marianne and I were over in the UK. We were staying at a house. And while we were there, a um, woman came. About the second day, second or third day we were there, a woman came from Boston. She was a professor at a, at a school out in Boston and she was alone, and, and she had come, and, and she was obviously very um, broken. So we began to talk with her, and she shared her testimony. The summer before, she had been at a Christian family camp. I think it was in Massachusetts. And as her family was at the camp, her youngest son drowned in the pool. And she couldn't get over it and so we we uh went out for dinner together we went and saw a shakespearean play i think it was a midsummer's night dream we uh we um drank tea late into the evening and the story was of how her life has been crumbling ever since that because she couldn't get over the pain and, and we just ached as we sat there because we thought, here she's getting with strangers the community she couldn't find because she wasn't going to fix it. 
And here's one of the things I need to say to you. This is, this is about the brokenness of life. This is the promise of the gospel. One day he's going to fix it all, but some of us, we know the journey is going to be a long journey in this life. And, and to not be in a community, to feel shame that you can't pull it together is the opposite of anything Jesus would want for you. And that's what I see in this woman in the text. And Jesus being so wonderful in the passage. Here's the other thing. Um, We were praying before the service this morning and we're talking about how we live in a culture where there doesn't seem to be any shame. On one hand, sin is rampant and public and open. And on the other hand, it seems like everybody's being shamed everywhere. Just this weird contradiction, it seems, for us. But I want to read to you um, an exhortation from Tim Henderson on how we ought to minister to our students who are growing up in a culture of shame. And he says there's a shift going on. Listen to what he says. He says, in the East, sin is primarily experienced through shame, honor, shame culture. But he says, but in the West, it seems we're in transition. We're moving away from being a guilt-based culture towards a shame-based culture. It's not hard to see why. Guilt is the experience of one who has broken the law. If there's no law, there can't be any guilt. But for a a generation of students who don't necessarily agree that there is a fixed moral code they are obliged to obey, guilt is a concept with little meaning. But they still do things wrong, and they somehow know they are wrong. In particular, they tend to do wrong things with their bodies. We are in a wash. We are a wash in a sea of sex and sensuality, pornography, premarital sex, promiscuity, abortion, homosexuality, sexual abuse, eating disorders are all issues of the body and shame often but not always zeroes in on sins that are committed by and against the body. So as belief in absolute laws has diminished and as sins of the body have increased, we've moved away from guilt and towards shame as the primary experience of our fallenness. Because of that transition, many of our students have grown up experiencing shame more than guilt. But they've done so in a country where the Christian community's expertise lies in dealing with guilt more than shame, which probably means that to many of them, and maybe to many of our staff as well, he's leading a Christian organization, the offer of the gospel doesn't sound as sweet as it actually is. Here's the good news, young people. Christ has come to save you from your sin and from the shame that you feel over your sin. One thing to note that's really important, though it's not my main point, he says, we also experience shame because of things done to us, not just what we've done. When a woman is raped or a boy is molested, they too experience shame, though it's a different shame. It's not their fault. That is, they aren't guilty if they've been a victim to someone else's sin. So there's shame over what we've done. There's shame over what has been done to us. People who have experienced those things don't need to be forgiven for what has happened to them, but they do need the restorative power of the gospel. They need to hear God say what's true of them, what, the, what Jesus will say to this woman. We need to hear. 
They, though they have no share of blame in what's been done to them, the truth of the gospel is what they still need to hear in order to restore their lost sense of self. That's our culture. And in that culture, some of you need to hear it today. You need to hear Jesus tell you, you can come out of your shame because on the cross he took it all. He took shame. He was mocked and beaten and scorned and ridiculed to take sin, to take shame. You need to hear that. But the church as a whole need to realize that we need to be a, a community that doesn't propagate shame. And we also need to bring the gospel to bear on shame so that people broken and weary by not only what they've done. I'll, I'll use another illustration I didn't use in the first service. But just a few years ago, I got a phone call. And I picked up the phone, and on the other end of the phone, all I could hear was weeping. And so I looked at my phone and saw who it was. And I said to my friend, he was a younger friend, he was a, about tw- you know, I, I could have been his dad, he was a dear friend of mine. He was on the other end of the phone, I said, take your time. I had been with him like seven years before. And he had battled depression and anxiety. He had addictive tendencies. I remember sitting in Starbucks and looking across the table at him. And because we were close, I asked him this question. I said, were you ever sexually abused? And he answered very clearly to me, no, that has never happened. He's weeping on the phone. I said, take your time. It took him seven years of friendship to feel safe enough to say to me, yes, I was sexually abused by a close family friend. And that's when his healing began. Do you understand in ministering to shame that we, this is not an instantaneous thing. You don't get over it in a moment. We have to create a culture where the call of Christ allows people to be vulnerable enough and to be exposed enough and to feel safe enough to go to that place that they're afraid of going. Waterbrook, we need to be a refuge for those kind of people because Jesus came to take away shame. So here's what I want to do. Let's look, let's look at these two people. The two main characters, Jesus is the main character, but the two main characters here are Jairus and this woman. And let's just see that Christ's mission is to, to rescue broken people from sin and shame. That's our mission. And we have to learn how to shepherd people out of shame through the gospel of Jesus Christ if we're going to be a refuge for them or Christ is going to be a refuge. So let's take a look at this. So here are two very different people who have a common struggle, right? They are very desperate people. One has been on the outside for at least 12 years. Outside of the community. Unclean. And remember in the culture, even think about this for Jairus, in the culture, to have disease and to be unclean is paralleled to being guilty and to being ashamed. So even for Jairus, think what What's going on could be read into this religious leader by the culture and the community in which he exists. Both of them are coming to Jesus absolutely desperate. So let's look at Jairus first and see what happens. So if you look at Luke chapter 8, 
verse 40, Jesus comes back from the land of the Gerasenes. It says, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. I'm just going to stop and say this. I am very cognizant that some of you have lost children. And I hope that you get even a drop of comfort from Jesus today, that he understands and cares about this kind of grief. Jairus is desperate. He's desperate. He's got a child who is so ill that she is at risk of death. And any of you have experienced that. You know, I remember, again, going through grief and trying to lead my teenage daughters through grief. I, by and large, coped well with grief. Not all the time, but coped well with grief. But when my kids went into darkness or when it looked like they were broken over the loss of their mom, that's what hit me most. That's when I felt helpless. That's when I got on my knees. I sort of, sort of was like, God, Lord, you can put it on me, but save them. Right? You know what it's like as a parent. So kind of feel the desperation of Jairus. Now just think about this for a moment. In the culture at this time, the Jewish establishment was not growing fonder of Jesus. Jew, Jairus is the ruler of the synagogue. So when he comes to Jesus, he's going against popular opinion this is an act of desperation so let's just think about what it's his act of desperation is like it says his posture what is his posture like in this text when he comes to Jesus what does he do he falls at Jesus feet now you talk about being unconcerned what everybody thinks because as you know in these first few chapters of Luke's gospel when people come and fall at Jesus feet what is it it's worship it's a sign of worship. The woman who comes in to Simon's house and falls at Simon the Pharisee's house, falls at Jesus' feet. What does she do? She weeps. She takes her hair and cleans Jesus' feet. She anoints his feet with costly perfume. This is humility. This is desperation. This is love and affection. Jairus doesn't care. The ruler of the synagogue has known somehow in all the mix this religion this kind of put it together, this holding my position isn't going to save my daughter. There's only one person who can. And so he comes in, his posture is one of humility, even his presence. I just wanted to say this, Jesus, as Jairus comes to Jesus and in order for him to do that act means, because <laughs> uh, one of the commentators points out, he says Jairus was a man of position and he could have been like other people in Luke's gospel who could just send somebody to get Jesus. Jairus was not waiting around for somebody else to do his bidding to go get Jesus. He came personally. He needed Jesus desperately and he was going to come and make the request personally. Not only that but his pleading. Listen to the language here in this text of scripture it says in verse 41 and falling at Jesus feet he implored him and we're supposed to just feel that just feel the holy desperation here before Jesus he implores him it's the Greek word parakelio which is used in the previous chapter where the demons 
implore Jesus. They plead with Jesus not to send them into the abyss. Don't send us into hell. Don't condemn us. That desperation is paralleled with his desperation. He is pleading with Jesus to come. Philip Reichen writes, generally speaking, Jesus did not find favor with the religious establishment, but this man was desperate. He had heard about Jesus and the miracles he performed, and rather than sending one of his servants, he came in person as a sign of his humble submission. He was desperate. Now what about the woman? Do you see the parallel here? How old is his daughter? Twelve years old. How long has the woman been suffering from the flow of blood? Twelve years. What Luke is showing us under the inspiration of Scripture is these aren't random events. These are divine, this is a divinely orchestrated. Both of, these women, both of these people are desperate. Their desperation is driving them. The timing is orchestrated by the Lord who intends to deliver them from shame. That's what he's come to do. This is no random accident. They are desperate and going to him, Jesus is drawing them. You've got to see this. In fact, the timing is crucial that this woman shows up at this moment absolutely desperate. So let's look at her desperation. As we look at this text of Scripture, he describes, Luke describes her this way, says in verse 33, and there was, 43, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. So just think about this for a moment. Imagine the mental and physical torment that this woman had been through. Just imagine, just, just imagine how physically miserable this was. Imagine how socially miserable this was. The, the book of Leviticus taught in the Jewish culture, that if you were unclean through a flow of blood, you were cut off socially and spiritually. Now, we, it was hard enough to have two years of COVID and fight those disconnects. You can you imagine 12 years of this? Not being touched, not being welcomed, not hearing the worship team sing the psalms over you. To be cut off to be broke. She can't buy anything now. She has nothing to bargain with. She spent all her money and got nowhere. She's desperate. Now, take it one step further. The timing couldn't be the worst. Because Jesus is walking along with who? Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. Everybody there knows she's not to touch him. Do not to touch anybody. So she's desperate. This is her carpe diem moment. She's going to seize the moment. She's got one moment to go in. This is it, to touch the hem of his garment. She's coming in. Now let me add one other thing here that I think is going on. And I kind of lean in this direction, but I won't fight for it. Is that some commentators believe that she's actually a Gentile. Because in Luke's gospel, when Jesus cleanses somebody who is Jewish... He sends them back to the priest 
so that they might be declared clean. He just did that with the leper in previous chapters. This woman is cleansed, but Jesus doesn't send her to the priest to acknowledge it. So David Sean, in his research on this, argues that in the early church there were many who believed that this was actually a Gentile woman. And so she knew she wasn't supposed to come in. The whole system had been set up to keep her at a distance. Eusebius, one of the early church writers, tells that he was in uh, Caesarea Philippi, and there he saw a statue there, and the statue was a statue of Jesus and this woman, and the, uh, the inscription underneath was giving glory to God for sending a Savior for Gentiles. So he believed that, and Augustine wrote about it, and there are other early church writers. For whatever it's worth, it's really clear, I think, in Luke's gospel, the way this is structured, that he has Jesus ministering to the Jews in private. So in the beginning of this text, we have um, the disciples alone with Jesus on a boat and Jesus does a miracle and takes away or shows them that they are to fear him as Lord. Then Jesus goes to a Gentile, the Gerasene demoniac, and delivers him in public. Then in this scene, we have Jairus at first, but he gets set aside as a substory for a moment to the woman who comes to Jesus and she is healed publicly, possibly as a Gentile. And then he deals with the ruler of the synagogue who's Jewish in private saying, don't tell anyone what's just happened. You see what I think is going on here in Luke's gospel? Luke is saying Jesus was very clearly announcing in delivering this woman in the Gerasene demoniac that he hadn't just come for the Jews, he was going after the nations. This is rich. This is glorious. This is merciful. It is so merciful. Again, listen. Listen as um, the Philip Reichen says, this woman's alienation was profound. She was an outcast. Out of necessity, she had pulled away from all physical contact, including mem members of her own family. It had been 12 long years since anyone had embraced her. During that time, she had to be careful not to touch anyone or let anyone touch her. Maybe her condition was not a matter of life and death, but something had died inside her. Some of you know what this is like. Right? You feel this palpably. I just want you to know Jesus sees you. He's got a word for you today. He's got a word for all of us of what kind of church we need to be and how we need to live and do ministry. So Jesus stops. I love this. He stops and, and, and you, can you can imagine what is going on. On the way to Jairus, the synagogue's ruler's place, Jesus stops and he asks a question. And, and, and I, I believe he's going to deal with shame for both of them. He's going to help them overcome their shame. And here's the first thing. He looks at the woman, and what he does is he calls her out of the shadows of shame. She does, I don't know if she's an introvert. She does not want to be called out, right? Isn't it clear she doesn't want to be caught and called out? And so there's this moment where she, Jesus is going along. She touches Jesus. She is immediately, after touching the hem of his garment, healed. She knows it. Man, I just stop for a moment. What was that like? after 12 years of physical, never feeling well, to feel the fresh breeze of a new day. What was it like? And then to have that moment ruined by Jesus speaking. <laughs> Momentarily, oh, 
I am better. I'm going to sneak off into the... Who touched me? Oh, no. Right? Instant, instant fear. Who is it that touched me? Let me ask you the question. Did Jesus know who touched him? Really? Come on. He knew who had touched him. Absolutely aware. But Jesus asked the question. And we were talking about this in the office this week. Just the sweetness of this passage of Scripture because Gabe was saying, you know what, this just sounds familiar. It sounds like God in the garden speaking to Eve and Adam. Where are you? And what are they doing? They're hiding. This daughter of Eve, suffering under the curse, hears a new voice calling her, who touched me? Everybody goes silent, except for Peter, of course. Everybody goes silent, and Simon Peter goes, duh. What do you mean, who touched you? Everybody's touching you. We're trying to get you through the crowd. Everybody's jostling you, and Jesus goes, no, no, no. I'm not talking about touching me. I'm talking about touching me. Because I experienced power that went out from me. And the woman, realizing she isn't going to slink away into the shadows, is called out. Now, Jesus is not doing this to shame her. He's doing exactly the opposite. He is saying to her, no way. Sister, you are not going to live in the shadows. Not sister, daughter. You are not going to live in the shadows of shame any longer. I've come to deal with that. And he calls her out. (laughs) And she tells the story of how she did it, why she did it, how she was healed by it. And then de- look, look at this verse. Listen to Jesus. Because some of you need to hear Jesus say this to you today. Verse 48. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. What is Jesus a- addressing here? The first thing is her identity. Isn't that a beautiful word? Daughter. In this story, there is a man whose daughter is dying. And you can see the love of Jairus over his his desperate love over his daughter. And Jesus is saying in this text of Scripture, you love your daughter? Well, let me introduce you to my daughter. And the doctrine of adoption into the family of God is announced over this woman. She is not to live in shame. She is a daughter of the Christ, the Messiah. She is a daughter of God brought into his family by faith. And there is an eradication of humiliation. And friends, you need that today, some of you. It's not what you have done. It's not what people say. It's not the shame you walked in here with. It doesn't matter how you felt about yourself walking in. It only matters about how he feels about you. And he loves you with an everlasting love. And he is adopted into your family. And as we sang already, he sings over you. Please feel that. Please, sons and daughters, whatever your shame is, you need it. That was seven years with a friend of mine looking him in the eye and saying, you are loved by God. You are loved. Don't you know people that you want to hear that message? Really clear. Second thing is not only her identity, but her integrity. Because in the culture, right? In the culture, that sickness would have been tied to sin. And Jesus says to her, he commends her, your, what? Faith has 
healed you, made you well, right? Your faith has. Not your works, not the opinions of men, not any actions you've done. Your faith, that's what happened. The greatest thing you've ever done is trusted in the greatest one who ever came. Your faith has made you well. The echoes of the scripture all the way through from Abraham all the way through is the righteous shall live by faith. For by grace we have been saved through faith. You see, this woman didn't have to do anything but trust Jesus. She's the hero of the story. Because every argument against her would say, do not dare, do not risk, do not come, do not come to him. Everything argues against it. And she says, I have, to whom shall I turn? Money? I don't have means. I've been doing this for 12 years. No one, nothing. He alone has the words of everlasting life. Only he can save. Your faith has made you well. And then this beautiful line, go in peace. The priest, shepherd, gives the benediction. He says to this woman, do not carry this baggage any longer. Go in the shalom of God. Go knowing that God's favor is upon you. Go out there and never live in the shadows of shame anymore. Do not do that. You don't have to do that. Why? Because God has set you free. His peace. God's peace. Not the approval of men. Not how you feel on a Tuesday. The eternal peace of God. Having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious? And so he shepherds. Jesus, this, Jesus just shepherds her out of shame. He's not calling her out to embarrass her. He's calling her out to set her free. You don't have to do this anymore. And so we got to fight for this, folks. we got to help people when they're feeling shame and they're do, going through the long periods of distress. We have to remind them of these great truths, Right? And to remind them that in Christ you're a child of the King. We've got to remind them that having been justified by faith, you are set free. You have now peace with God. No one can bring any charge against you. Let's sing it every Sunday. Easter's every Sunday. Sing it over and over again. Now, it's interesting with Jairus, it's almost like Jesus does exactly the opposite. He shepherds her out of the shadows and he shepherds Jairus into the shadows and all I mean by that is Jairus was living the public life and Jesus says to him you don't have to impress anyone anymore it doesn't matter what anyone else says so let's just let's just go and so they're walking along and as they go along someone comes to Jairus and says the worst news you could possibly hear your daughter has died Don't bother the teacher anymore. Just so you know, that's not exactly an expression of faith. It was sad. I can imagine how devastating it was for Jairus to hear that. But here's the good news of Jesus. This person who is, (laughs) you know, and and I've I've seen this before. What happens is, you know, we, we say to somebody, you can imagine, you can see someone when they're really desperate, becoming religious, running to God. They have this religious moment. And and then and then things go on for better or for worse and people say you know we can appreciate that you got religious for a moment but let's not keep this religious thing going don't bother the teacher that's he's not the teacher he's the lord 
So it's an expression of unbelief. And, and I love Jesus. This is what I mean by his shepherding. Look what he says in verse 50. But on hearing this, he answered Jairus, do not fear, only be well and she only sorry only believe and she will be well i wish i was there because i can just imagine jesus looking uh, Jairus, look here not there you don't have to be doing this public thing just look here trust me she's gonna be okay and he shepherds him along taking him in private he gets to Jairus's house and jesus walks in he's leading and Jesus says, don't be worried. She's just, what? Asleep. And what's the reaction? They laugh. They laugh. Now, I think the, it, they were already mourning, it says. They're weeping. Now, this could have been professional mourners. Seems like by their reaction, the, how quickly they laughed, that they were professional mourners but either way they're not believers in Jesus they think this is absolute absurdity and nonsense they look at him and say this is ridiculous they laugh at the words of Jesus she is only asleep and so Jesus got to shepherd him through that right and you know one of the one of the temptations I'm sure in the religious culture was to go back to that life of performance to look at the approval of men to to, to pretend everything's okay. And he says, you don't have to do. These are pretend people in mourning. Because if they really cared about you, they would be going, look to Jesus. Stick with him. Trust him. You know, that's what we, we got to be very careful in our ministry to one another. That we're not pretend mourners. We're walking along with somebody that's broken. That we don't just go, you know, I feel really bad for you. We, we, have, to, we have to say, I'm going to help you run to Jesus. I don't care what anybody else is saying. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. We've got to go to Jesus and stay at Jesus and plead with Jesus. And I'll do that when nobody else is around and nobody else is noticing. When I wake up at 3 a.m., I'm going to be pleading to Jesus, God have mercy. Right? Till, till he raises the dead one day and makes all things new. Can't we do that for each other? Please? I mean, really do it for each other? So Jesus takes him in and he closes everybody out. It's just Jairus and his wife and the disciples. And he says, Talitha. <laughs> right? He says, little girl. Be healed. Rise up. And she rises up. And it's made new. Let me just tell you, friends, that may happen in this life. It'll certainly happen in the next, in the middle of our sorrows. But Jesus does that. And then he says, then he says to them, now don't go running around telling everyone. And I just think, you know, if I was Jairus, I'd be going outside, stick it to you. <laughs> Mr. You know, leave the teacher alone. He's not a teacher. He's the Lord of the living and the dead. He's got the power of resurrection. Right? Jesus says, you don't have to go back out there and prove anything. I am all the proof you need. I have come to set you free and to make all things new. Isn't that a good word? 
My dear friends, you don't have to perform and prove anything as a Christian to anybody. We don't have to walk in and pretend we've got it together. My dear friends, the Bible is clear enough. Nobody here has got it together. And we all are looking forward to a new day when Jesus will make all things new. I want to share a quote from Spurgeon here. He says, it's not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It's not our weakness that that hinders Christ, it's our strength. It's not our darkness that hinders Christ, it's our supposed light that holds back his hand. My dear friends, our problem isn't that we haven't got it together, that's our strength. So we can quit the show. We can quit the show. Also, I wanted to share this quote from Lewis and in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, defining humility, humility is the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity. Is that a great line? Which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. Friends, give up the show. Give it up. You have nothing to prove because Christ has proven it all. And he will prove you one day that the best decision you ever made was to throw yourself at the feet of the master. And he who raises the dead will raise us up and make all things new. So let me give you a couple of um, prayerful applications quickly this morning. Number one, it's okay not to be okay. Right? It's okay. Because we live in a broken world where we groan. And the Spirit groans with us. And Christ intercedes and the Spirit intercedes for us. So, so dear friends, it's okay not to be okay. You don't have to, please, you don't have to get your life together to come to Waterbrook. You're, you're more of a problem if you think that. I'm more of a problem when I think that. Secondly, it's okay to take your time to work through the pain. Ever notice how long God works with Moses? Americans, God isn't in a hurry. He, he, he'll take 40 years to fix you. And then he'll really fix you on that day. Praise God. Number three, Trust Jesus with the worst parts of you because he already knows it. And he also died to redeem and rescue you from it. He went to that cross. He bore our sin. He took the mocking and the scorning so that he might say, son, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And here's Just another word, it's not forever. Easter's coming. (laughs) Resurrection is coming. And then and there, Jesus will make all things new. I can't wait for that day. Right? We'll all have a Jairus daughter moment. We'll always have, we'll all have that woman. We, (laughs) on that day, we'll realize how sick we really were how broken we really were, and how beautiful Jesus is. Let's pray together.
Oh God, I thank you that Jesus shepherds us out of sin, guilt, and shame. Thank you, dear God, that in this mess of life where we grieve and we're broken and we weep and we long and we ache, dear God, that Jesus is fully aware. I pray, dear God, for anybody who just came in today just feeling like a total disaster, that you would show them that Jesus is sufficient and sets us free. I pray, dear God, for those who feel like somehow they have to hold it together, perform religiously, keep that Minnesota exterior of everything's okay. We are okay, but only because of Jesus. So Heavenly Father, would you help us make Waterbrook a refuge? Make Jesus the refuge of Waterbrook. Help us, we are weak, but you are strong. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.